We look forward to Jeff's continuing series on the home and in particular what he is dealing with now, uh, rearing children. I am 74 years old and I've heard and seen a lot, but I've never heard lessons to excel even equal what he is doing on these lessons. It would just be a marvelous thing if every parent could sit in this audience and hear these great spiritual truths based on the mind of God to parents everywhere and how to rear children in this awful environment in which we find ourselves. It was far easier rearing children in those early years of our marriage when Sherry and I were rearing our two sons. What changes have developed in this country that makes child rearing and everything else so much more difficult with which to contend. We continue this series on the purpose of preaching based on Acts chapter 2. And number six in this series is produce conviction. People respond to the gospel for various reasons. Some respond driven and motivated by emotion. It's not possible to separate a man from his emotions. Consider the difference, and there's no way to properly contemplate this with our finite minds. In the emotional being of Adam and Eve before and after, Genesis 3, 6. Genesis 3, 8 describes God after the tragic event of 3, 6. And I love the old King James phraseology of this sad text. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The implication just in this singular text being that this was a common thing. And we have no difficulty understanding why that would be the case. God created this first human pair and they were like unto him. They were perfect in mind. They never had an evil thought prior to Genesis 3. 6. They never experienced <clears throat> lust, human lust. That is the foundation for monumental evils. They never said an ugly word to one another. They had a perfect marriage. Adam was the perfect husband. Eve was the perfect wife. They opened their eyes at the dawn of every day in perfect minds and bodies, greeting a new day, a day of perfection. Nature sung them to sleep at night under starry skies, enjoying one another's physical presence in a perfect and innocent state. It's impossible for our minds to contemplate 
that. We can plunder the depths of it to the degree that we are capable all the days of our life and never be able to really understand it as they did. And no doubt then God would regular come because he was their maker and they were the made. He was the creator and they were the created. He was their, they were their, his spiritual offspring in his image and likeness. Not physically because God is a spirit, but in regard to their spirits, like unto God. And they would commune one with another. Trying to deal with this from a human perspective and contemplate it to the best that we're capable. We can certainly hear them ask questions of God. Do we not like to ask questions? In our class this morning on Ezekiel, we briefly considered that point. That upon reading the Bible, there are many places where we wish... Humanly speaking, God had paused and answered a lot of questions that he knew would pass through our minds. But it's not the purpose of the Bible just to be an endless answer to questions that we might like to have answered. Perhaps they ask God a lot of questions. Perhaps God said things like, Tenderly and aware of their finiteness, even if I were to answer that question, you could not understand it. Because there are innumerable questions we could ask of God, and if He were to address them, we could not understand them. Heaven is not going to be one unending series of questions addressed to God and God answering them. Even in that perfected state separated from sin and all the weaknesses characteristic of it, we will still not be God. And even in eternity, we could ask many, 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 many questions. And God could say, even if I were to address them, you would not be capable of understanding them. Perhaps something similar to that occurred in these conversations together as the created walks with the creator in the cool of the day. And then Genesis 3-6 rears its ugly head. And they have lost everything they once had. Everything. Nothing will ever be the same. Their emotions are rent into more pieces than you could count. Only God could put them back together again. But that could not be done in the perfected sense because we are on the other side of God, perfection, man, and innocence. Genesis 1 and 2. And they are now in the world of Genesis 3-6, a dark, ugly, at that point hopeless 
world until God pierced the darkness with the illuminating power of the first gospel sermon, which in essence says, Genesis 3.15, I'm going to take care of this problem that you have created. Oh, the difference in the emotional being of this first human pair in Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3.6. Cain offered his sacrifice by self-will. God rejected both Cain and his sacrifice. Cain was full of wrath and in anger and wrath he killed his brother. Both of these tragedies are full of emotion. It is impossible unless you have experienced it. Looking down as Adam and Eve did on their first son who once lay as a babe in arms, thrilling their hearts. And now they look upon this adult form of the one he has killed lying in his own death blood. The questions God raised to Cain are mind-piercing. Genesis 6 to 8, the global flood. A hundred and twenty years, Noah preached to those people. Second Peter 2, 5 says he was a preacher of Righteousness. No doubt he warned them in every sermon, unending numbers of sermons, the judgment day is coming. You need to repent of these evil thoughts of your heart. You need to try and get your heart back into gear with some pure thinking and proper pondering and reflecting. You need to prepare yourself for the coming judgment. Those chapters 6, 7, and 8 in those 120 years are full of emotion. Genesis 22 was the greatest test of Abraham's faith. God came to that man and said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, offer him for a sacrifice on a mountain which I shall show thee. On the third day, encompassing three days, having risen early in the morning, Abraham and his son and those two servants. Only Abraham knowing where the journey was going to end and how, as he viewed by faith, his dead son by his own hand being raised from the dead by the power of God. Every step that Abraham took was emotional torture. As he viewed the mountain with his own eyes yet afar off, his emotional framework was rent into pieces when his son said, Father, we have the fire, we have the wood, 
Where's the lamb for a sacrifice? He could not bring him to himself to say at that point, my dear son, you're, you're the sacrifice. What an emotional journey that was. Let us ponder number 16. Additional proof that the hearts of the masses that came forth from Egypt were faulty. They were eyewitnesses to judgment upon Egypt, salvation at the Red Sea, the sweetening of the waters of Marah, the earth draped with manna, water gushing from a rock, Sinai wrapped in thunder, lightning, smoke, and the presence of God, 3,000 men in the sleep of death before ashes of a golden calf, the tabernacle robe with the glory of God, the consumption by fire of the offering at the consecration of Aaron and his sons, two priests engulfed in fiery death for supplanting God's will with their own will, a man stoned to death for blaspheming the name of God, and another for gathering sticks on the Sabbath day the fire of divine wrath burning in the camp, the smitten of a great number with a great plague for ingratitude and murmuring, Miriam's leprosy for defying God's authority in Moses, the death of the ten unfaithful spies, and a closed door to Canaan for their own belief, own unbelief. Such mammoth demonstrations of the nature and will of God were unable to suppress the propensity for rebellion that characterized the first generation from Egypt. Leaders in Israel rose up against Moses and Aaron, attempting to rob Moses of his authority and Aaron of the priesthood. God destroyed them with an earthquake and fire. The very next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. A second manifestation of divine wrath claimed the lives of 14,700. Following these acts of judgment, God reconfirmed the priesthood of Aaron with his rod that brought forth buds and bloom blossoms and yielded almonds. If those people had been motivated by a mind flooded with God said, and actions like that we have just read about. Instead of driven by emotion, how different would the outcome have been? That confrontation on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 was running over with emotion. 400 false prophets screaming like a bunch of wild beasts to a lifeless idol, ending with bloody bodies and silence. The altar rebuilt, the sacrifice placed upon it, immersed in water, and then this great prophet of God stepped aside and prayed a short but powerful prayer filled with emotion. 
but motivated by faith. And it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah drew near and said, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things according to thy will. Let these people know that thou art God, and thou hast turned their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord failed, consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And the people fell on their faces and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. 1 Kings 18, 36-39. That cry was emotional driven. It was a cry of emotion. Because at the end of the day, nothing changed. And old wicked Jezebel said, By this time tomorrow, you're going to be like unto the prophets of mine that you have slain. And even mighty Elijah, driven by emotion, accompanied with fear, temporarily lays aside his mighty faith and travels for 40 days and 40 nights to a mountain. Only to hear God ask, What? are you doing here? Emotions are powerful things. If one obeys the gospel motivated by emotion, it's not going to last. It's just not. It's going to have to become more than that. Filled with emotion, yes, but motivated by faith based on God says. Emotion in that kind of response most definitely. But it's not emotion standing by itself. Peter's preaching on Pentecost of Acts 2 produced conviction. Those 3,000 were mightily convicted. Was there emotion involved? There's emotion when a man says, What shall we do to be saved? And there's emotion in hearing, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And there's emotion involved when one goes down into the water and comes up out of the water. Looking to the cross for his redemption. But it's emotion that has been to the university of God said. And has been taught thoroughly how to respond properly. And when. But it's emotion based on faith in what God has said. Some obey the gospel because of family pressure. Sometimes parents push their children to obey the gospel. If they are young in age, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. That's youth. They don't need to be pressured. Taught, encouraged, but they don't need to be pressured. When our grandson, dear to our hearts and words can express, was considering being baptized at a fairly young age, 
by permission from his parents, I took him aside one day and said, Aiden, stay young in mind as long as you can. Enjoy your youth. There's a time to be a child. There's a time to be an older child. Don't take on the mighty, incomprehensible weights of adulthood. Too young. Be a boy and enjoy the blessings of youth as a boy as long as you can. There come a time when you need to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and baptized into Christ. That time has not yet come in your young life. Don't pressure your children to obey the gospel. The time will come when they will know and you will know that it's time to obey the gospel. Family pressures of all kinds and under family pressure it just will not stick if that's the sole motivation. Some respond out of fear. And there's a place for not just healthy fear in the biblical sense, coupled with deep-seated reverence for the Almighty One. And there's also a time for being afraid, literally afraid. Adults who have been prodigal in life and are yet prodigal, who are enjoying playing with the pigs in the pig pen, they're enjoying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. They're having a big old fleshly, sensual time rolling around in the hog pen of sin. They need to be afraid. Afraid of what might happen while they are yet in the hog pen of sin. They should be feeling emotional terror and mental terror at where they are. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If a person responds just out of fear, it's just not going to stick. It's just not. We need the kind of conviction that was produced on Pentecost of Acts 2. That's conviction based on God said. Again, we repeat half of the sermon preached on Pentecost of Acts 2 constituted quotations from the God saids of two of his great prophets, David and Joel. And it was these God saids that pricked their heart. As they thought about what Peter said, ye with wicked hands 
have crucified and slain the Son of God. They were stricken to the uttermost of their being. Their hearts were thunderstruck with the lightning and thunderstrikes from the mind of God to their own minds. They were motivated by fear. But they didn't have to be pressured by anyone to obey the gospel because they were convicted in their hearts. All those multiplied thousands who heard the same thing did not experience what they experienced on that notable day. Only this small, minute number in contrast, no doubt, to the number that was present were pricked in their hearts and were convicted relative to what they had done, relative to the truth of what they had just heard, relative to their need, crying out, what shall we do? And the answer given, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, was received with great gladness of heart. Those of us who are of some age in this audience and who have been at the Christian life for years ought to be able to say, I believe everything basically, as far as the basics are concerned, fundamentals of the faith, that I believed when I was taught at my parents' knee. They taught me the old Jerusalem gospel. I obeyed the gospel way back there in the days of taught youth. And when the time had come to do what I know I needed to do, not under family, parental pressure, but under the conviction that even a youth can possess. And therefore be able to say now at these twilight years of life, the only difference in then and now is that my convictions now about those basic truths are a thousand times multiplied by a thousand deeper and more mature than they were then. Oftentimes those who have drifted into liberalism will try to justify themselves by saying, I have revisited things I used to believe and I have learned some things that I did not know then. I've changed my thinking about some of the fundamentals of the faith. The book Voyage of Faith that me and the Lord wrote, primarily the Lord, some years ago, was my revisiting the fundamentals of the faith that I was taught from a youth. And I thank the good Lord that I was able to say, I still believe now what I believed then. I've revisited all of those truths, every one. And I've not changed my mind about a single one because it was true then from God then, the truth then. And I believed it just as God said it. 
And I now, in the twilight years of my life, believe exactly now what I believed then. But my convictions, of course, are far, far deeper. If God delays His coming, I hope that all of these precious, innocent children in our midst will be able to make that same statement in the twilight years of their life. Because the truths that were preached on Pentecost of Acts 2 still ring and resound in their now aged hearts that will be then. And nothing has changed because they obeyed the gospel out of conviction. They grew in their conviction. They matured in their conviction. And all the demons in hell and all the liberal preachers and teachers and members of the liberal movement in this country could not sway them because they are convicted deeply so about the truth based on God said. One of the purposes of preaching is to produce conviction. You've not obeyed the gospel. You need by faith to repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ, or you need to confess sins, or you need the prayers of the church in any way. We want to help you while you come as we stand and sing. Oh. 